90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Knee deep in thesis corrections. <laughs> not my Ooh. own, though. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, that's nice. even worse i know you're right it is it is even worse <laughs> um no my students uh, thesis defense got moved up a week so that was exciting due to you know us faculty cats that can never be corralled into the room at the same time <laughs> speed powerpoint <laughs> that's the name of the game now oh that's exactly right <laughs> he's like i have 60 slides do you think that's too much yes Yes. yes. <laughs> by by three. <laughs> so yeah, so that's that is literally all I've been doing. All right. Uh-huh. How about you? Uh you know, I've been working away doing some pretty cool problems and as always finding, you know, surplus equipment on eBay that I can <laughs> repurpose. <laughs> Every time I see some weird scientific thing, I always look you know, and I'm like, I'm sure you've bid on this before. Well, you know, I was going to buy some manual pressure intensifiers like they use for uh, high pressure geochem experiments. Mm-hmm. And I was going to buy a couple of new ones. And then something was like, go look on eBay. And sure enough, there were two of them on eBay for like a tenth the price. God, there is the weirdest, weirdest stuff on eBay. I remember you first telling me when there was like a magnetometer on eBay. I'm like, what? And now I look all the time. I'm like, this is the most ridiculous stuff. Yeah. Well, and this is one of those things where, you know, okay, yeah, they're really cheap. So they probably leak like crazy. Mm-hmm. It's less expensive for my customer to pay me to reseal these <laughs> nice. than to buy new ones in nice. the end. That's awesome. And I mean, I'll pressure test them. So we'll, well be sure. sure that, you know, nobody gets hurt but see this is why you should use lehman geophysical for all your needs you're looking out for their bottom line too (laughs) yeah i'm actually wearing your t-shirt right now too that says your company name on it but you know i didn't get paid for that i just want everyone to know (laughs) yes all endorsements are uncompensated (laughs) that's for sure (laughs) you know I, i was laughing the other day at what a change of daily routine it is instead of getting up and getting dressed in a button-up shirt and going into the office. I've worn nothing but pocket t-shirts and Dickie's work pants. <laughs> Weekend every day, man. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. But um, I, I finally broke down and I gave up and had air conditioning installed in my building. So weak. <laughs> Today it was 102 outside. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it kept the shop area a comfortable 83. <laughs> More importantly, it got rid of the 9,000% humidity that we're experiencing around here. <laughs> yes, uh, super saturated air is definitely a thing. Oh, man. Uh, <laughs> I swam out to my car today. It was repulsive. So at one point, the ob was like 90-something temperature <laughs> and 70-something dew point. Oh, oh, oh so gross. <laughs> it was real gross. It was like hazy. There was so much moisture in the air. It's, yeah, it's just hanging. I can't believe we're not spontaneously, you know, erupting into Noachian flood conditions. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Just an excuse to say Noachian, obviously. Yeah, there are lots of fun words. <laughs> uh, so, you know, I've also been reading some listener email. Oh, well, everyone knows I don't read emails. So what do they say? <laughs> Yeah. Uh, So listener Dave wrote in about the origin of Waxstone. I saw this on the Slack channel. You should be proud of me for getting on. And, you know, I I did see the like the dictionary definition Mm -hmm. of whack. Mm -hmm. And I'm still unsatisfied. With the dictionary definition or with Dave's definition? Well, so he says that it's a large stone. So whack is a large stone. From the old high German, wacko, which was gravel, or vacko, since it's German. German. Uh, Waxstones aren't gravel. No, not even close. Yeah. (laughs) So, I mean, that is definitely the root of where this came from. Yeah. But I feel like somebody was trying to shoehorn a German word in here (laughs) just because. (laughs) 
when they did this naming. But thanks, Dave, for sending that in. Yes. Uh, and he also had a little bit more of the German etymology than I had found. Yes. Yeah, that is yeah. true. I mean, at least it's a rock-related thing, I guess. I don't know. I, I, try, I was trying to think when I saw that in the Slack how, like, what type of wax stone did they see that that was the name that they gave it, you know? Right. <laughs> like, broken up. Maybe it was brecciated or something. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, and so the other thing, on an, on an unrelated note, uh, listener Steve wrote in and said that he had done some just naive uh, Newtonian calculations because somebody said something to the, you know, the, the problems where would you rather have $100,000 or a penny every day that doubles? Oh, mm-hmm. Yeah. Those kind of things. Yep. Uh, so somebody said something kind of like that to him. They said, you know, if you were to accelerate at 1G, gravitational acceleration, for a year, you would be at the speed of light. Okay. And so he did the calculation. Says, turns out you're actually at 1.03 C, so just Ooh. over the light speed. Mm-hmm. So why do spacecraft not that are accelerating at sometimes rates much greater than G? Mm-hmm. Why do we not break the light speed? Well, relativity gets in the way. Yeah. <laughs> so simple math can't solve that. Yeah. Uh, so, but he did point out, so the units for a velocity, such as speed of light, are meters per second, a length per time. And acceleration, G, is a length per time per time, a meter per second per second. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this just happy coincidence turns out that G is close to the speed of light divided by a year. Oh. Wow. Man, that's cool when math does that. Yeah. Hmm, and I nice. didn't even have to use the number nine. <laughs> that's where all these fun math things come from. Seems like it's things that are based in the number nine. <laughs> that's really cool. Hmm. Yeah. Nice. So thanks for saying that in, Steve. That was a, a fun thing to read the other night. I love it when Steve starts to do math. It's always an interesting uh, email that follows. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, so, you know, we were talking about what to do this week, and it seems to me there's only one topic we could talk about this week. It really is space. Well, you know, our nearest neighbor in space anyway. Yeah. So this week is the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 moon landing. That's crazy. What's really crazy is I still have a shirt from when I worked at NASA that was the 40th anniversary. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's, yeah, that's pretty good, too. Um, I definitely have a polo from when I visited NASA. (laughs) Yeah. That's probably that vintage-ish. Yeah. I think this was a little old when I got it. But, yeah, it was, I I saw it in my closet the other day. I thought, wow, this shirt is 10 years old now. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's awesome. There's been all kinds of 50th anniversary stuff, obviously, all over the net um, about you know, Apollo 11 and everything. And I follow um, Michael Collins on Instagram and he does some super cool stuff too. He was always one of my favorite astronauts. So, yeah. So have you seen this whole thing about Project Egress? Uh, not in any depth, no. So the Smithsonian and Adam Savage, formerly of uh, Mythbusters, mm-hmm. have cooked up this thing called project egress where they're building a replica of the apollo 11 command module hatch oh and it, okay. and it'll be on display at yeah. the smithsonian yeah can you get in it uh no so this is just the hatch oh okay yeah but it's mind. got all the mechan. i mean the hatch was a really complicated thing yeah that is true uh and the cool thing about this is they contacted many many i would say dozens of youtubers that do mechanical type things on their channels and they all made parts and sent them in and then it's getting assembled live at the exhibit that's super cool uh so i don't know how many listeners follow some of these different channels but like this old tony made some parts 3d printing nerd made some parts um, NYCCNC, 
uh, Fran, Fran Lab, they made some parts. Uh, just all of these people got planned and made their little piece and sent it in. That is super cool. That gives me the feels about not just citizen science, but, you know, humanity in general. Yeah. That's super cool. So I highly encourage you to go watch some of those videos. Uh, I'm very partial to this old Tony myself. (laughs) His sense of humor matches mine very closely. Uh, Are they like live streaming any of the actual assembly or? I think some of it is going to be live streamed. I'm not sure how long it's going to be on display either. Uh, But man, I'd love to go up there and see it. Oh yeah, that's super cool. Hopefully it'll travel or something after this. Yeah. Uh, So, I mean, this would have been a really nice thing to participate in. And all these people that were participating in it said, you know, it's cool to think that something that they made is going to be on display at the Smithsonian. They never thought that would be the case. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, And it's, I think it's helped them maybe boost their channel some and then... Uh, also of course boost the project so it was a really cool idea and i'm really glad that they they were able to execute this yeah that's super awesome is it opening this week or anything or is it ongoing right now uh i think the exhibit is opening this week i believe okay yeah i mean makes sense obviously yeah um because i saw some of the people that participated in this project traveling there this middle of this week Mm -hmm. yeah uh so the Apollo 11 launch. So 1969, that would have been 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. And it launched on July 16th. So that would have been Tuesday of the week that we're recording this. Mm-hmm. Right. And then lands Thursday. So the day before we release. No, so it lands on July 20th. So the day after we release. Oh, man, I'm sorry. I can't calendar. <laughs> that's right the 19th is friday gotcha there you go (laughs) Uh, i see what's happening (laughs) so what's really crazy if you think about it is i mean you've been doing things this week so imagine tuesday morning somebody sealed you (laughs) in a volkswagen bug and you didn't get to get out until saturday unless you're michael collins (laughs) and then you had to stay in the bug for another four days (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Oh, man. I think that's why he was always my favorite. It's like, man, the poor guy gets to go to the moon, and then he's got to stay behind in the car while his his little brothers get out and go play. (laughs) Yeah. So so you've mentioned Michael Collins. He was the command module pilot. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, Then we had Neil Armstrong, of course. Mm -hmm, Of course. And Buzz Aldrin, which is a great name, and he is... An amazing person. Yeah, so he's doing a lot of very active things now, encouraging us to get to Mars. Mm -hmm. Yep, exactly. I still have my little golden book of My Life as an Astronaut by Buzz Aldrin. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's real good. (laughs) So, uh, you know, one thing, this is, I would say, a marginally religious topic, uh, but he actually took communion on the moon. And no his church kidding. still has that set, and they use it every year on the Sunday closest to July 20th. I did not know that. Oh, yep. my gosh. Wow. Or, oh, my God, really. Yeah. So it was, <laughs> awesome. uh, it was a cool thing to find out. I don't remember where I read that That's somewhere a while back. That's super cool. I had no idea. Wow. Yeah. That's super neat. Yeah, so Apollo 11. I mean, I can't imagine an event right now that would bring together humanity like this probably did yeah and it was almost not mm-hmm. so i mean i, I really want to get to talking some about the geology of the moon but the, the actual landing was really pretty scary uh yeah and we could probably talk about the geology of the moon in you know 10 different shows really <laughs> I have two books that are over an inch thick sitting behind me right now that are both on lunar geology. <laughs> I know. These are definitely not going to be summer shorts. This is going to be like summer, you know, pants you wear on stilts if we talk about the geology of the moon. But <laughs> right. anyway, let's, uh, yeah, let's talk about the actual mechanics of what went 
I mean, it went right ultimately, sort of. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, so they had to do all kinds of fancy maneuvering to even get the spacecraft set up. Mm-hmm. But once they did that, they start descending. And about 6,000 feet mm-hmm. above the lunar surface, the computer starts throwing program alarms. Right. Remember, these computers are much less powerful than your iPhone. Uh, probably much less powerful than my graphing calculator, right? Yeah, so the entire space program operated on about two megs of RAM, like the whole program combined. That's so mind-blowing. <laughs> um, now, this would be the equivalent. So you would get these little indicators that popped up with an error number. So this would be the equivalent of a Windows, you know, <laughs> sketchy box with a big long error code popping up while you're 6,000 feet above a planet or above a moon, (laughs) 250,000 miles from home. (laughs) Just click. Okay. Just click. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, So these were the 1201 and 1202 program alarms. Okay. If you listen to the transcript, you hear them read out this alarm and I heard Gene Kranz tell the story of an engineer named Jack Garman who was in the back room. So Mission Control, you have the front room where you classically see on TV. But each of those people are sort of the head of that system. And each of them has a ton of people working in these back rooms that feed them information. Right. And so Jack Garman was sitting in the back room and he heard on the loop he was listening on these program alarms come out. And he remembered from some exercise exactly what they meant. And he knew that they could proceed with the landing. They were close to aborting. And he just got on the loop and said, we're go on those alarms. And this guy who was younger than I am right now <laughs> uh, was unquestionably trusted. If if somebody said we're good to go, nobody said are you sure. They just kept going. That's hard to believe that that job would exist anywhere today. You know. Yeah. Hmm. And then another alarm came up, and he said same type. And that was the last you ever heard of it. Hmm. Uh, cool. It turns out these were the computer saying it had too much to do. Oh. Be- because there was a, they had a landing radar that was looking down, telling them how high above the moon they were. And there was a rendezvous radar that would tell them how far from the other spacecraft they were when they were getting ready to dock. Mm-hmm. They left the rendezvous radar on so it would be warmed up in case they had to abort. Okay. Yeah. Because of a weird bug in the system, if you powered things up in a certain order, sometimes <laughs> the computer would get confused between these radars. Oh. This is why we had that big sign in our magnetometer lab. You had to power things up in a certain order or else the software wouldn't work. Yeah. Yeah. So I understand. Not as important, but I understand that. (laughs) So it was a bug that was found post-mission and fixed. (laughs) This is the importance of software testing, everybody. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Oh, nice. That's awesome. So they're going down. they, They get past that. And then they see their landing area where they're supposed to land and say, uh-oh, because uh, <laughs> there are a lot of boulders in it. <laughs> like for real boulders. <laughs> yeah. And you've got to remember, uh, you could almost just take a pin and poke through the skin of the lunar module. Yeah. Yeah. Real scary doesn't react to boulders so well this is before those big inflatable balls that you you know throw throw your robots at planets with right (laughs) Uh, oh yeah scary um interestingly enough at one of our former guests dr megan elwood madden who's one of your colleagues Uh pointed out that actually an ou alum was on the team that was responsible for helping pick out these landing sites uh well that makes it sound bad <laughs> well the landing site itself was the area was good it's just the specific the point specific that they had picked point. was bad uh exactly so there there are actually a 
a lot of Oklahomans that were involved in many of the Apollo missions. Um, and there's a recent book by a journalist who outlined, you know, Oklahoma's contribution to basically the space program. Um, yeah, it's a big deal. We're Oklahoma's very historically aerospace heavy. Um, and lots of Oklahomans had lots to do more with the later Apollo missions, but all through here. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, rocket dying was up in Missouri. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah. So lots of Midwest involvement in this program. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. I'm trying to do uh, so, some Oklahoma love, John, you step back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, so th- th- they're maneuvering around trying to find where they're going to land. But then they start getting call outs about how much fuel they have remaining. <laughs> Just park the car. <laughs> oh, man. So when they landed, they thought they had about 25 seconds of fuel left mm-hmm. before they would have had to abort. Right. Post mission analysis, which there are still papers coming out in this decade doing different post-mission analyses of Apollo program things. Gosh, that's unbelievable. Um, but post-mission analysis has revealed that they probably had a little closer to 50 seconds because it looks like they were overestimating the burn rate. Oh, thank God. Usually that usually that kind of caveat goes the other direction. <laughs> yeah, I'll say that same air in the other direction meant they would have gone splat. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. Or not had enough fuel to get back. Right. But I would say that these things were always aired on the other side. <laughs> yeah, which is nice. <laughs> um, so, so they land. And the first thing on the schedule after they land is a <laughs> five-hour nap. Oh, my gosh. How could you even do that? Yeah. Like, how could you do that? <laughs> Welcome to the moon. Got to take a nap so you got your energy when you get out to play. <laughs> yeah. Oh, uh, rough. <laughs> so they didn't do that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they moved the EVA up. Uh. And uh, went out and collected a lot of samples. Yeah. And we've got to see, you know, thin sections of these because that's really exciting. In our Igneous and Petrology class, um, the professor that teaches it always orders some moon rocks from NASA and they come ITA this class. Um, I'm not an igneous or metamorphic petrologist, but for some reason I thought I wanted to do this one semester and they come in these awesome little metal cases and you have to sign all these waivers and it feels like you should receive them and they should be handcuffed to you because they're moon rocks. So I actually found the picture the other day when I was going through photos when you were TAing that of oh, you and I yeah. holding that box. <laughs> oh, that's right. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I definitely stared in the microscope a lot that week, way more than I worked on any other lab. <laughs> yeah. Just because it's awesome. I mean, all kinds of weird rocks. It's super cool. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, Smarter Every Day, uh, they did a video on the lunar sample curation oh wow Mm -hmm. i really encourage everybody to go watch it it's real intense um, yeah (laughs) like so if they're cutting it if they're going to subdivide this rock as soon as and anybody that's cut rocks knows they fall (laughs) apart into lots of little chunks yeah so as you're cutting as soon as it falls apart you have to immediately stop, take photos, number and bag every chunk. And the idea is many of these rocks have been cut hundreds to thousands of times. Mm-hmm. If you were to gather all of those little samples back up, you could use the documentation to reassemble the rock. Oh my gosh. So every piece has an orientation and a number, and they're all recorded. We just wash ours down the sink. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's impressive. Uh, all the scales have to be calibrated and pass calibration before they start doing anything, so they verify they don't lose any. That's 
crazy. Uh, it all happens in glove bags, of course, with nitrogen atmospheres. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And the rocks were actually sealed in a a briefcase, basically, that had multiple pressure seals on the moon. So they were stored in vacuum in oh, transit. That's awesome. That's some foresight right there. Well, especially because when the astronauts got back into the limb, they reported smelling kind of like gunpowder. Mm-hmm. And that's because in an oxygen environment, they had reduction reactions going on with the minerals. Yeah, they started oxidizing instantly. mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, oxidation, sorry, not not reduction. Right, right. Yeah. That's Uh, awesome. So they did a lot, and Apollo 11 really didn't bring that much back Mm -hmm. in terms of samples. Well, I mean, it was, you know... Anything's better than virtually nothing. Yeah, I mean, later missions brought back several cases of samples. Mm-hmm. Um, but they came back with uh, 22 kilograms. Yeah, that's not bad. Yeah. So it's 50 rocks and some tubes of soil. Oh, it's so, yeah, it's so cool. And I mean, the basis of the analysis that went on is one of the things that goes into, you know, why do we know the moon is from us? Like, why don't we think the moon is some captured body or something that just broke off and got, you know, roped into our orbit. And it has to do with the analysis that went forward with these rocks is that it's a lot like earth. So it probably came from us. It's a lot like Earth's mantle really. Right. Um, and also, I never really thought about you don't just stroll out on the moon and pick up a rock and put it in your bag. <laughs> so these are all very carefully categorized as to exactly where they were mm-hmm. and exactly what orientation they were in. Because that they didn't know why they might need that information, but they knew in the future they might need it. Oh, thank and God. now people have done all kinds of things with like, well, this side was exposed to more solar wind than this side. Right. Or, we do all kinds of cosmogenic nucleotide agings and all that stuff. And you have to know, you know, which way it's pointing. So that's fantastic foresight. Not just, look at that cool rock. Where'd you get it from? I don't know. Somewhere over there. Yeah. It's just how geology goes. Yeah, right. Exactly. But obviously a good field geologist instructed them on what to do. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, Well, you know, and we've talked to Dr. Jim Head about that some. Right, yeah. Uh, But I do want to read, this isn't from Apollo 11, uh, but to say a little about how difficult it was to contain yourself in (laughs) some of this. Uh, So this is actually from Apollo 17 uh, with Schmidt and Cernan. And this is where they discovered the orange soil samples. Mm -hmm. So let me just read a couple lines from the transcript here. It's all over. It's orange. Don't move until I see it. I started up with my feet. Hey, it is. I can see it from here. It's orange. <laughs> Wait a minute. Let me put my visor up. It's still orange. It sure is. Crazy. Orange. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> but he has to stand exactly where he was. <laughs> <laughs> it still is. Crazy. <laughs> oh it's so hard like you know neil armstrong had to you know i'm gonna be the first man on the moon i gotta come up with this brilliant thing to say and then (laughs) and then that (laughs) yeah that's great (laughs) so the 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 weird orange Mm -hmm. what was it yeah oh well we're saving that for later oh okay all right then i'll then i'll i'll shush (laughs) (laughs) yeah so there are some fun things going on with geology found in later missions as we got more adventurous and went to more geologically interesting areas Mm -hmm. Uh, the apollo 11 samples were pretty much basalt and breccia okay great so the basalt is pretty much like basalt you'd find on the ocean bottom yeah exactly so, the, you know, there was pretty, one big exception, though. Pretty fresh mantle, though, we're talking. 
Yeah, and the moon had a lot more titanium than we do in our basalts here. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, the aging was also, so it was 3.6 to 3.9 billion years is what these dated out to. Okay, great. And then we get to the breaches. Mm-hmm. So I, not being an igneous person either, <laughs> uh, the basalt to me is like, okay, it's basalt. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, we had a, a lava type surface of the moon for a while. Mm-hmm. And that's when a lot of this formed. Right. Okay. So the breccia, these were a lot of these formed from impacts, breaking up rock. Mm-hmm. And we've talked a lot about impacts in the past. Yep. If you want to hear more about breccias, you can come to Nick's thesis events on Friday at 8.30 a.m. <laughs> <laughs> because it's all about breccias. <laughs> So these had a lot of the highlands material in them, and that's an orthocyte. Okay. What's an orthocyte, John? Did you get your ternary diagram out to figure this one out? It's almost pure plagioclase. Yeah, that's hard to get. I don't think we get it on Earth, do we? Oh, yeah. But pure? Yeah, I mean, not like 100%. It's, I said ternary diagram for a reason. It's usually not the end. <laughs> Yeah, this was definitely the end member. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so lots of little chunks of that in these brushes, all kinds of fun, uh, small impacts causing like little glassy interfaces between clasps. Mm-hmm. But I mean, yeah. you know, once you start to get those those minerals, they start to get weathered and broken down pretty fast on Earth. Right. Not you so know. much on the moon. Right. Weathering, totally different thing there. Yeah, the lack of water really put the damper on that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know. So, you know, people always say, like, Neil Armstrong's footprints will be there forever. False. Mm-hmm. So there's no wind to cover them up like there would be on So they're, they're still there, sure. Right. The moon but... is still, like, they're going to get filled in with regolith eventually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You get Lots some, of small impact events. and Yeah, you get little moon quakes, right? Shaking all yeah. that stuff around. Yeah. yeah. Not to mention whenever the next country gets up there, I'm sure they'll just wipe all of our stuff out. <laughs> 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 like any kid with a can of spray paint would do. <laughs> well, you know, empirical evidence says that using the imperial measurement system is the key. <laughs> but I'm <kidding. laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So, I mean, that's really the the main things that we learned. I mean, of course, there are lots of things about the specifics of lunar geology, but we figured out that it probably came from us, mm-hmm. and we learned a lot about the geochemistry of these basalts and breaches from the samples that were brought back on Apollo eleven. Mm-hmm. Right. Exactly. This is always a question on my intro exams. So, listen up, kitties. I guess. <laughs> Which is, how, right. can, how can you tell the moon came from us? And it's because it's made of us. But there's also some cool new minerals that happened there, too. Right. <laughs> uh-huh, yeah. Okay, so back to that titanium-rich stuff, right? So this is one of the coolest slides in the whole slide set of the moon, and it contains this mineral called armalkalite. Do you know why you call it armalkalite? No. It's the it's the first letters of Armstrong Collins Armalkalite and Aldrin. And Aldrin. Aldrin. Mm-hmm. Okay. Isn't that cool? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, one of the cool titanium rich things, you know, you got to you got to name it something else. So, while we do get an orthocyte here, there's this weird titanium in this stuff that we found and it got named Armalkalite and I thought that was super cool. That is. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, go ahead. What so, happens so yeah, after they, they load up with their rocks? <laughs> they, they load up with the rocks. They blast off. They go meet Collins in the command module. Who just uh, is dump... grumpy the rest of the time because he didn't get to have any fun. <laughs> <laughs> you know, dump the remainder of the limb and uh, go into a trans-earth path. Ugh. So scary. Yeah. So, you know, one big engine burn and mm-hmm. you got to get it right. 
uh, Moog, which makes servo hydraulic valves, actually the same valves that we used on the Biax when I was doing my grad work. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were the manufacturer that made the servo hydraulic valves that steered the engines. Oh, nice. On the, the command module and on the Saturn 4B and the Saturn 5 boosters. And they had some fun videos on their YouTube channel about them. That's awesome. Uh, so, yeah, then they get back, they land, and we start putting these in the sample lab. Now, they had originally thought they were going to keep the moon rocks in vacuum chambers. Right. But. It's very hard to work in a vacuum chamber. hmm Yeah. A glove bag is much better. Right. That's pressurized with nitrogen. And they determined that nitrogen wasn't going to interact with anything. So that's what they did. There you go. Mm-hmm. There are some drawings of the early vacuum chambers. It was pretty much a reverse spacesuit that you would have to use to interact with the samples. Uh, and it's like, if you've even put gloves on and tried to like take samples, that's real hard. Yeah. So I can't imagine having to work with precision in that environment. Yeah. I mean, even now in the glove bag where you've got flexible plastic gloves, it's still hard because yeah. they have to do things like put gloves on over those gloves to yeah, handle samples. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So that is sort of uh, what I wanted to say anyway about our our tribute to Apollo 11. Yeah. Our Malkalite's always what I want to say about about Apollo 11. So and it's just such a cool thing and one of those things where I will just say it's time that we go back. Not just keep going on into something else in the future. Go back to the moon, huh? Yeah, I think so. As long as we don't have advertisements on it. That's all I ask. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) So, you know, Apollo 17 uh, was 1972. Mm -hmm. That was the last manned mission to the moon. Mm -hmm. So the thing I always like to quote is if the Earth were the size of a basketball... Since 1972, nobody's been further above the surface than the thickness of a sheet of paper. Wow. That's impressive. Yeah. That is impressive. I mean, we've sent stuff, but not the same. Not the same. And I also saw a pretty good comment earlier this week of, you know, 1960s. Okay, you've got 100 kilobytes of RAM. Great. Let's go to the moon. 2019. (laughs) You have 16 gigabytes of RAM. Why is my computer slow? I think Excel has a dialog box open somewhere. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> Couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> yeah. Oh, how embarrassing people. <laughs> I mean, we're not even talking about trying to run Slack. Oh. I think my window is still spinning from when I tried to open it before we even started talking. <laughs> yeah, I, I unfortunately have not been uh, very active in the Slack chat room, but I hope to get back in there. Um, I don't think I've been in it for a while, but yeah, mm-hmm. I got back in today. So hi, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> but speaking of community involvement, John. Yeah, so I think it's time for everybody's favorite segment of the show. Fun Paper Friday. Yay. (laughs) Clearly, I just picked this for the title, but I knew it was close to your heart. (laughs) Yeah, so Snakes on a Spaceship, an overview of Python heliophysics by Burel et al. (laughs) This paper was amazing. I'm really surprised you didn't write it, is all I have to say. (laughs) Except for you're not a heliophysicist. (laughs) True. But it's got some great stuff in it. Yeah, you know, we talked about philosophy of testing. There's a lot of philosophy in this paper. It sure is. (laughs) And obviously, I really did just pick it because snakes on a spaceship. That's hysterical. Um, But that's what it's about. It's about, you know, um, open source stuff and how do you start building a community of useful stuff. Like, what are the, what are the hazards associated with it? You know, what is keeping people back? Because I think they had a stat in here that said something like 92% of scientists support open source stuff, but only 18% contribute to it. Yeah, and that's not sustainable. Yeah, exactly. So how do you make this 
where everyone can contribute to it without fear, which I think was probably one of the biggest obstacles of, you know, being scooped or something like that. Um, and we've talked about stuff like, you know, archive and earth archive now is the same sort of thing. Well, if I put all my stuff out there, you know, I'm going to get scooped, but I think that's not quite happening, which is kind of what they're talking about in here. Like this actually helps more than it hurts. And there are some protections and this is how you can move forward, especially, obviously this one is just focused on the heliophysics community. Right. And they actually cite Iris. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we've, we've talked to several Iris folks before. Mm-hmm. Right. As sort of the, the gold standard of, community data sharing and tool sharing because mm-hmm. they have tools for people to get and analyze data from the US array. Right, exactly. They have physical tools too that they loan people. <laughs> True. Yeah. Um, yeah, I thought that was cool that that's one of the first things they talked about. Um, and I didn't know what Mertonian norms were. Yeah, I didn't either. You didn't. Okay, that makes me feel a lot better. I was like, man, I'm a really bad academic, which I knew anyway. But <laughs> but I was like, oh, goodness. Um, because he cites these, you know, for these reasons for doing this. And the second one is upholding Mertonian norms. And this is from Merton, 1957, talking about things, um, this Western scientific ethos of universalism, communalism, disinterestedness, and organized skepticism, which, yeah, this was very interesting. I think that definitely was the norm. I think we're failing on several of those norms now. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Organized skepticism being one of them, but that's another show. Yeah. (laughs) Just a show. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So one thing I really liked in here is, you know, a lot of folks get scared about, like, licenses on software. Right. And they went through all of those things. Like, okay, this is what copyleft license means. This is what, like, the MIT license means. This was the part that I thought that you would once talk about. <laughs> um, I had to look up copyleft. Um, number one, I've never thought about copyright in that way. I love that this yeah. is called copyleft because <laughs> it's the exact opposite. And I've talked to you about this not on the show. Um, about, you know, how do you protect that stuff and how do you keep people from using your stuff to make money? And the deal is it's because if they use your stuff, then their stuff has to be free too. Right. And so there are some bad things. Like I, I'm pretty firmly against the GPL license, Mm -hmm. uh, because it is so strict Gotcha. On if you use any piece of GPL code, not only is that piece have to does that piece have to be open source? Your entire thing has to be. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. So if you had some snazzy analysis and you used a little chunk of GPL code to save yourself having to write some calculation, all of your stuff is now GPL. Right. I don't like those kind of licenses. Personally, I really prefer the MIT license. Okay. MIT license says you can do whatever you want with it. You can make money. You can not make money. You can modify it. You can do whatever. Don't come looking for me. (laughs) I grant you permission to use this however you want with no warranty. I don't just don't contact me about this. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh that's funny <laughs> and i mean it's not really the intent to say don't contact me but right you're not responsible or whatever exactly you're not gonna fix their breaking of your stuff to help them do stuff with it yeah yeah mm-hmm. so i like those very open licenses but any license is better than no license it, it, i thought this is a really good explanation of accessibility is the section that it's under for that too because like i said we've talked about it not on the show before and this was a kind of a really cool sort of summary if you're even wondering where to begin you should start with this these five paragraphs (laughs) well and you know a lot of people say well i don't bother picking a license i just it's out there you can use it if you do not specify a license 
it is copyright protected and not open source. There you go. You must specify a license. That's interesting. That yeah. is interesting. Um, I like the thing they talk about too afterwards because I think that every everyone's sort of, you know, like, well, I don't want to put this out there and get scooped or have somebody steal my stuff. You know, that's why all the magic happens behind the curtain or whatever. And they... It seems like this is something that they fight against and they're trying to come up with a sort of citation manual of how you accurately attribute these ideas to people and trying to make that the, you know, the norm of operation in this sort of, you know, environment. Well, not only that. So you know how busy your average academic is, right? Yes. They don't have time to respond to most emails. Yes. Please tell me where they're going to find time to go digging through your GitHub repository, trying to find your little piece of magic and scoop you with it. <laughs> Look, I am a very special snowflake, John. I'm sure everyone's watching everything I do. <laughs> you know, a lot of people worry about what happens when other people use their code. And my reaction is always, should you be so lucky? <laughs> As for somebody to want to reuse something that you've done. Like there are lots of things where I've done, I've put lots of effort into it because I thought, oh, this is going to, lots of people are going to want to use this. And then zero people have shown any interest. (laughs) That's sad. (laughs) So, you know, always, well, should you be lucky enough that somebody finds this useful and interesting enough to want to use? (laughs) Please just put my name on it. (laughs) Right. Yeah, there you go. And they go into the next thing, which is like best coding practices, which Lord knows I've heard you complain about several times. Yes, things like supporting the current standard version of the language. Ahem, no more Python 2. Uh, following PEP 8, which some people say, well, the code works, whether it's PEP 8 compliant or not. Yeah, but it reads a lot better if it is. Oh, man. Good comments, good doc strings. Yeah, I really looked for your name in this very long list of authors. (laughs) Uh, And then under a section, they call it rigor. Yeah. uh, Which is the very academic term for software testing. Mm -hmm. Yes. They make the distinction between things like unit tests and integration tests and system tests. I don't know that I bother most of the time. <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, Ouch. I mean, like, really, if, if you're an academic that's writing software and you're going to write tests, you're already in, like, the 99th mm-hmm. percentile. Yeah, you are. <laughs> you don't need to worry about, is this a unit test or is this an integration t- It probably doesn't matter. But this is a good, I feel like this is a good, like, reference to those things. Yeah, because you'll hear them thrown around a lot. Right, and this very explained it very well. Yeah, so a unit test is you're taking a little tiny thing, the smallest atomic thing that your program can do, and testing it. So I have a coordinate transformation that happens. I take a, a strike and dip, and I change them into some other coordinate system. That would be a unit test. Mm-hmm. An integration test is when multiple pieces of your software have to work together and you make sure that they can communicate effectively. Right. So does does your coordinate transformation give out things in units that this other function is then taking in and doing things with appropriately? Mm-hmm. System testing is sort of the whole program together. Right. And then acceptance testing is will people use it? We just talked about this like two shows ago, right? This is great. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So I thought this was a really, really good paper that I'm surprised I haven't seen a paper of this caliber in our domain. Right. Because, you know, they say that even though most helo physicists aren't computer scientists, they're not trained in computer science, but they all use this stuff. Yeah. I feel like there's a lot of, well, some of these are even called geo stuff that they that he talks about. So maybe all the geology stuff is just scattered everywhere. Who am I kidding? There's only like 
0.05% of geologists that do this, right? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, All you geophysicists, yes. You You should write this paper for geophysics. Well, you know, it's uh, th- one of the more useful things in it. And I will say this is one of the parts that's not going to age well. Mm-hmm. One of the appendices is a list of all of the yeah. relevant Python libraries that they can think of for their field. Yeah. Yeah. That will probably be outdated by the time or was outdated by the time this hit press. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's good to have that as a starting point, though. Which, yeah, I think is, you know where what his point was too you know. well you're a new grad student getting exactly. into this field you find this paper and it's like oh look here's a list of all the software you might find helpful yeah wow <laughs> yes exactly <laughs> like this is pretty amazing and you mean if it doesn't do exactly what i need i can make it do that and then contribute it back and other people might use it oh how do i do that oh wait i'll just read the five pages before then and now i know how to do that too <laughs> yeah yeah it's real good (laughs) um yeah i thought you'd appreciate this one (laughs) i I did very much this was a great find i was really curious though after i read the first part of the title (laughs) snakes on a spaceship oh man dorks i love it (laughs) yeah i was uh i was envisioning something on par with the uh trajectory of a falling batman (laughs) (laughs) no no it's just the title the rest of it was just useful (laughs) Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but also a good read. Absolutely. So if you've got thoughts on open source software in your field, scientific reproducibility, or the Apollo 11 moon landing, uh, those of you that were able to witness this in person, I mean, everybody knows exactly where they were yeah. when we landed on the moon. Mm-hmm. Uh, we would love to hear and share some of those stories as well. Shannon, how can they send those in? Please send those in. Show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. Um, as we just said, we're still hanging out in the Slack chat room now. Um, so come over there and share them and we'll read them on the air. We're on the Software Underground, the Don't Panic channel. You can find us on Twitter. I'm at Shannon Doolin. John is at geo underscore Lehman. Together we are at Don't Panic Geo. And thank you as always to our Patreon supporters. If you would like to support us on Patreon and keep us going, we're on patreon.com slash don't panic geo. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.